The translator to the reader of The Spirit of the Laws. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Benjamin Giddens. The Spirit of the Laws by Charles de Second, Baron de Montesquieu. Translated by Thomas Nugent. The following work may with the strictest justice be said to have done honour to human nature as well as to the greatest abilities of the author. The wisest and most learned men, and those distinguished by birth and the elevation of their stations, have, in every country in Europe, considered it as a most excellent performance. And may we be permitted to add that a sovereign prince, as justly celebrated for his probity and good sense, as for his political and military skill, has declared that from M. de Montesquieu he has learnt the art of government. But had the illustrious author received no such distinguished honour, the numerous editions of this work in French, and their sudden spreading through all Europe, are a sufficient testimony of the high esteem with which it has been received by the public. But notwithstanding the deserved applause which has been so liberally bestowed on the author, there have been some who have not only endeavoured to blast his laurels, but have treated him with all the scurrility with which bigotry and superstition are apt, on every occasion, to throw out against truth, reason, and good sense. These M. D. Montesquieu has himself answered in a separate treatise entitled A Defence of the Spirit of Laws, from whence we have thought proper to extract, for the sake of such as we have not seen that treatise, the principle of those objections, and the substance of which has not been given in the reply. Only first observing that this defence is divided into three parts, in the first of which he answers the general reproaches that have been thrown out against him, in the second he replies to particular reproaches, and in the third he gives some reflections on the manner in which his work has been criticised. The author first complains of his being charged both with espousing the doctrines of Spinoza and with being a deist, two options directly contradictory to each other. To the former of these he answers, by placing in one view the several passages in the spirit of laws directly levelled against the doctrines of Spinoza, and then he replies to the objections that have been made to those passages upon which this injurious charge is founded. The critic asserts that our author stumbles at his first setting out, and is offended at his saying that laws, in their most extensive significance, are the necessary relations derived from the nature of things. To this he replies, that the critic had heard it said that Spinoza had maintained that the world was governed by a blind and necessary principle, and from hence on seeing the world necessary, he concludes that this must be Spinoism. Though, what is most surprising, this article is directly levelled at the dangerous principles maintained by Spinoza, that he had Hobbes' system in his eye, a system which, as it makes all the virtues and vices depend on the establishment of human laws, and as it would prove that men were born in a state of war, and that the first laws of nature is a war of all against all, overturns, like Spinoza, all religion and all mortality. Hence he laid down this position, that there were laws of justice and equity before the establishment of positive laws. Hence, 
alfo he has proved that all beings had laws, that even before their creation they had poffible laws, and that God himfelf had laws, that is, the laws which he himfelf had made. He has fhewn that nothing can be more falfe than the affertion that men were born in a ftate of war, and he has made it appear that wars did not commence till after the eftablifhment of fociety. His principles are here extremely clear, from whence it follows, that as he has attacked Hobbes' errors, he has consequently those of Spinoza, and he has been so little understood, that they have taken for the opinions of Spinoza those very objections which were made against Spinoism. Again, the author has said that the creation, which appears to be an arbitrary act, supposes laws as invariable as the fatality of the atheists. From these words the critic concludes that the author admits the fatality of the atheists. To this he answers that he had just before destroyed this fatality by representing it as the greatest absurdity to suppose that a blind fatality was capable of producing intelligent beings. Besides, in the passage here censured, he can only be made to say what he really does say. He does not speak of causes, nor does he compare causes, but he speaks of effects and compares effects. The whole article, what goes before and what follows, make it evident that there is nothing here intended but the laws of motion, which, according to the author, had been established by God. These laws are invariable. This he has asserted, and all natural philosophy has asserted the same thing. They are invariable because God has pleased to make them so, and because he has pleased to preserve the world. When the author therefore says that creation, which appears to be an arbitrary act, supposes laws as invariable as the fertility of the atheists, he cannot be understood to say that the creation was a necessary act like the fatality of the atheists. Having vindicated himself from the charge of Spinoism, he proceeds to the other accusation, and from a multitude of passages collected together, proves that he has not only acknowledged the truth of revealed religion, but that he is in love with Christianity, and endeavours to make it appeal amiable in the eyes of others. He then inquires into what his adversaries have said to prove the contrary, observing that the proofs ought to bear some proportion to the accusation, that this accusation is not of a frivolous nature, and that the proofs therefore ought not to be frivolous. The first objection is that he has praised the Stoics, who admitted a blind fatality, and that this is the foundation of natural religion. To this he replies, I will for a moment suppose that this false manner of reasoning has some weight. Has the author praised the philosophy and metaphysics of the Stoics? He has praised their morals, and has said that the people reaped great benefit from them. He has said this, and he has said no more. I am mistaken, he has said more. He has at the beginning of his book attacked this fatality. He does not then praise it when he praised the Stoics. The second objection is that he has praised Baal in calling him a great man. To this he answers, It is true that the author has called Baal a great man, but he has censured his opinions. If he has censured them, he has not espoused them, and since he has censured his opinions, he does not call him a great man because of his opinions. Everybody knows that Baal had a great genius which he abused, but this genius which he abused he had. 
the author has attacked his sophifms, and pities him on account of his errors. I don't love the men who fubvert the laws of their country, but I fhould find great difficulty in believing that Caefar and Cromwell had little minds. I am not in love with conquerors, but it would be very difficult to perfuade me to believe that Alexander and Genghis Khan were men of only a common genius. Besides, I have remarked that the declamations of angry men make but little impression on any except those who are angry. The greatest part of the readers are men of moderation, and seldom take up a book but when they are in a cool blood. For rational and sensible men love reason. Had the author loaded Baal with a thousand injurious reproaches, it would have not followed from thence that Baal had reasoned well or ill. All that his readers would have been able to conclude from it would have been that the author knew how to be abusive. The third objection is that he has not in his first chapter spoken of original sin, to which he replies, I ask every sensible man if this chapter is a treatise of divinity. If the author had spoken of original sin, they might have imputed it to him as a crime that he had not spoken of redemption. The next objection takes notice that the author has said that in England self-murder is the effect of a distemper, and that it cannot be punished without punishing the effects of madness. The consequence the critics draws from thence is that a follower of natural religion can never forget that England is the cradle of his sect, and that he rubs a sponge over all the crimes he found there. He replies, The author does not know that England is the cradle of natural religion, but he knows that England was not his cradle. He is not of the same religious sentiments as an Englishman, any more than an Englishman, who speaks of the physical effects he found in France, is not of the same religion as the French. He is not a follower of natural religion, but he wishes that his critic was a follower of natural logic. These are the principal objections levelled against our author. On this head, from which our readers will sufficiently see on what trifling, what puerile arguments this charge of deism is founded. He concludes, however, this article with a defence of the religion of nature, and such a defence as every rational Christian must undoubtedly approve. Before I conclude this part, I am tempted to make one objection against him who has made so many, but he has so stunned my ears with the words follower of natural religion that I scarcely dare pronounce them. I shall endeavour, however, to take courage. Do not the critics' two pieces stand in greater need of explication than that which I defend? Does he do well, while speaking of natural religion and revelation, to fall perpetually upon one side of the subject and to lose all traces of the other? Does he do well never to distinguish those who acknowledge only the religion of nature from those who acknowledge both natural and revealed religion? Does he do well to turn frantic whenever the author considers man in the state of natural religion and whenever he explains anything on the principles of natural religion? Does he do well to confound natural religion with atheism? Have I not heard that we have all natural religion? Have I not heard that Christianity is the perfection of natural religion? Have I not heard that natural religion is employed to prove the truths of the revelation against the deists? And the same natural religion is employed to prove the existence of a god against the atheists. He has said that the Stoics were the followers of natural religion, and I say that they were atheists, 
fince they believed that a blind fatality governed the univerfe ; and it is by the religion of nature that we ought to attack that of the Stoics. He fays that the fcheme of natural religion is connected with that of Spinoza ; and I fay, that they are contradiftory to each other ; and it is by natural religion that we ought to deftroy Spinoza's fcheme. I fay, that to confound natural religion with atheifm, is to confound the proof with the thing to be proved, and the objections againft error with error itfelf ; and that this is to take away the moft powerful arms we have againft this error. The author now proceeds to the fecond part of his defence, in which he has the following remarks. What has the critic done to give an ample fcope to his declamations, and to open the widefl door to invectives? He has confidered the author as if he had intended to follow the example of M. Abadi, and had been writing a treatise on the Chrijlian religion. He has attacked him as if his two books on religion were two treatises on divinity. He has caviled against him as if while he had been talking of any religion whatsoever, which is not Chrijlian, he fhould have examined it according to the principles and doctrines of Chrijlianity. He has judged him as if his two books relating to religion, he ought to have preached to Mahometans and idolaters the doctrines of Chrijlianity. Whenever he has fpoken of religion in general, whenever he has made ufe of the word religion, the critic fays, that is the Chrijlian religion. When he has compared the religious rights of different nations, and has faid that they are more conformable to the political government of thefe countries than fome other rights, the critic again fays, you approve them then, and abandon the Chrijlian faith. When he has fpoken of a people who have never embraced Chrijlianity, or have lived before Chrijl, again fays the critic, you don't then acknowledge the morals of Chrijlianity. When he has canvassed, any cuftom whatfoever, which he has found in a political writer, the critic afks him, is this a doctrine of Chrijlianity? He might as well add, you fay you are a civilian, and I will make you a divine in fpite of yourfelf. You have given us elfewhere fome very excellent things on the Chrijlian religion, but this was only to conceal your real fentiments, for I know your heart, and penetrate into your thoughts. It is true, I do not underftand your book nor it is material that I fhould difcover the good or bad defign with which it has been written. But I know the bottom of all your thoughts. I don't know a word of what you have faid, but I underftand perfectly well what you have not faid. But to proceed. The author has maintained that polygamy is necessarily and in its own nature bad. He has wrote a chapter expressly against it, and afterwards has examined in a philosophical manner in what countries, in what climates, or in what circumstances it is least pernicious. He has compared climates with climates and countries with countries, and has found that there are countries where its effects are less pernicious than in others, because, according to the accounts that have been given of them, the number of men and women not being everywhere equal, it is evident that if there are places where there are more women than men, polygamy, bad as it is in itself, is there less pernicious than in others. But as the title of this chapter contains these words, that the law of polygamy is an affair of calculation, they have seized this title as an excellent subject for declamation. Having repeated the chapter itself, against which no objection is made, he proceeds to justify the title and adds, 
Polygamy is an affair of calculation when we would know, if it is more or lefs pernicious in certain climates, in certain countries, in certain circumftances, than in others. It is not an affair of calculation when we would decide whether it be a good or bad in itfelf. It is not an affair of calculation when we reafon on its nature. It may be an affair of calculation when we combine its effects. In short, it is never an affair of calculation when we inquire into the end of marriage, and it is even lefs so when we inquire into marriage as a law eftablifhed and confirmed by Jefus Chrift. Again, the author having faid that polygamy is more conformable to nature in fome countries than in others, the critic has feized the words more conformable to nature to make him fay that he approved polygamy, to which he anfwers, If I fay that I fhould like better to have a fever than the fcurvy, does this fignify that I fhould like to have a fever, or only that the fcurvy is more difagreeable to me than a fever? Having finished his reply to what has been objected to on the subject of polygamy, he vindicates that excellent part of his work which treats of the climates. When speaking of the influence these have upon religion, he says, I am very sensible that religion is in its own nature independent of all physical causes whatsoever, that the religion which is good in one country is good in another, and that it cannot be pernicious in one country without being so in all. But yet I fay that as, at, that as it is practiced by men, and has a relation to thofe who do not practice it, any religion whatsoever will find a greater facility in being practiced, either in the whole or in part, in certain circumstances than in others, and that whoever says the contrary must renounce all pretensions to sense and understanding. But the critic has been greatly offended by our author's saying, that when a state is at liberty to receive or to reject a new religion, it ought to be rejected. When it is received, it ought to be tolerated. From hence he objects that the author has advised idolatrous princes not to admit the Christian religion into their dominions. To this he answers first by referring to a passage in which he says that the best civil and political laws are next to Christianity, the greateft blessings that man can give or receive, and adds, if then Christianity is the firft and greateft blessing, and the political and civil laws the fecond, there are no political or civil laws in any ftate that can or ought to hinder the entrance of the Christian religion. His fecond answer is, that the religion of heaven is not eftablifhed by the fame methods as the religions of the earth. Read the history of the church, and you will see the wonders performed by the Christian religion. Was she to enter a country, she knew how to open its gates. Every instrument was able to effect it. At one time God makes use of a few fishermen. At another he sets an emperor on the throne and makes him bow down his head under the yoke of the gospel. Does Christianity hide herself in subterranean caverns? Stay a moment, and you will see an advocate speaking from the imperial throne on her behalf. She traverses wherever she pleases, seas, rivers, and mountains. No obstacles here below can stop her progress. Implant aversion in the mind, she will conquer this aversion. Establish customs, form habits, publish edicts, enable laws. She will triumph over the climate, over the laws which result from it, and over the legislators who have made them. God acting according to decrees which are unknown to us extends or contracts the limits of his religion.
by Thomas Nugent. End of the Translator to the Reader.